John chapter 1, starting, starting at verse 1, all the way to verse 18. That's on page 1063. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening. Good evening. We had that this morning, Eddie. I'd have thought you'd have known better. There we are. Excuse me. Let me just. We're coming to the end of a brief series we've been having over the last few weeks, as you know. Um, on the subject of miraculous births. And uh, tonight is the last uh, in this particular series. Miraculous births. I wonder wonder if you know, you have a a clear definition of what a miracle is. Um, I went online, as we all do these days. Why get a book off a shelf when you can go online? And look up Webster's Dictionary, and Webster's Dictionary says a miracle is an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. An extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. And so we've been looking at miraculous births, and we're looking at that again tonight. There's no actual birth taking place in our section tonight, um, but there is... One, maybe two, wonderful miracles. Things that may challenge us because perhaps they're a little unexpected. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord, please open our minds and our hearts to the awe-inspiring 
gobsmacking, marvelous wow of the miracle that we are offered in Jesus. Amen. In our series on miraculous births, we've looked at several over the last few weeks. We started, I believe, with Samson, and uh, an angel appeared to his mother, and a baby was born, and she was told that when this baby grew up, he would be the one to rescue God's people. Judges chapter 13, if you missed that one. And then there was Samuel, 1 Samuel 1. No angel on this occasion, but uh, Hannah, who had been infertile for all of her life up to that point, asked God for a baby. And she said, Lord, if you give me a son, I will dedicate him to you. And he grew up to be a priest leading God's people. It's called Samuel. Samuel, you may know, means God has heard. That's what the name means. And she named him that because she said, I asked the Lord for him. A couple more miraculous births to come in a moment that we looked at over recent weeks, but I'd like to pause at this point to tell you a brief story. It comes with a little bit of a warning a little bit of, I'm sensitive to how this story may come across, um, because perhaps the concept of a miraculous birth might be a difficult one for some. Sometimes these miraculous births that we've been looking at seem to be distant. They're long back in time and long far away. And to have one maybe that is a little nearer may be difficult we may be faced with the question of, well, if there was a miracle for them, why wasn't there a miracle for me? But I think it's good sometimes to tell God's story, even if it gives us challenges. So I'd like to tell you the story of an event that was perhaps 35 years ago, when uh, a dozen of us or so uh, used to meet at Ronnie's and my house. We hosted uh, what would now be called a small group, a home group at our house. And one Friday evening, that's when we held this group, one Friday evening we were met together and I believe I'm right in thinking that the group had started already when a young couple who were members of that group arrived and said, could we please pray? And we said, yeah, of course we can pray. What what would you like us to pray about? And they told us the story that they had actually been trying for the first of their children. They were hoping to start a family. But over recent days, Helen, the wife, had been experiencing uh, considerable abdominal pain. And uh, they went to the doctor And the doctor sent them to the hospital for a scan. And the scan showed that they were having, she was having an eptopic pregnancy. If you don't know what that is, it means that the baby is growing in the fallopian tube, not in the womb where it ought to be. And the doctor said, "Then uh, I'm very sorry. It means you're going to lose the baby. It means that you'll probably lose your fallopian tube as well. Becoming pregnant again in the future will be that much more difficult. But this is a serious situation, and so we're going to admit you straight away. You will be in surgery this afternoon. 
the young couple, Helen and Trevor, said, could we please have 24 hours to think about it? No, you can't. This is serious. We're not messing about here. You can't. You will be in surgery this afternoon. So the young couple discharged themselves from hospital on the promise that they would return in the morning. It was a Friday. And on that Friday evening, they arrived at home group and asked us to pray. And pray we did. I'm not just talking about Ronnie and I as a group. We gathered around them and we prayed for this much-wanted baby. To no obvious effect at the time. But in the morning, they returned to hospital as they had promised. And the doctors were very pleased to see them and said, that's fine. The uh, operating team are ready. The theatre is ready. We'll have you in theatre in no time at all. And they said... Could we please have another scan? There's no point in having another scan. We know what the situation is. It's serious. We need to get on with this. I'm not sure how they persuaded them to give them another scan. It may be that they simply refused to sign the consent form for the operation until they had one. But they got another scan. And the scan showed that the baby was implanted in the wall of the womb exactly where it ought to be and was no longer ectopic. And eight months or so later, baby boy was born and they called him Samuel because we asked the Lord for him. Miracles. Can I prove God intervened? Maybe not, but I believe he did. Miracles still happen. Samson, born at an angel's notice. Samuel, requested by Hannah, became a priest of the Lord. We went on then to John, John the Evangelist, John the Baptizer, sorry, John the Baptist, again announced by an angel to his parent, to his father, while he was on duty in the temple. <clears throat> the prophet who would announce the coming of the Messiah. And then last week, I think, Jesus, Luke chapter 1, again an angel announced to Mary that she would be pregnant and she would have a child who would be called the Son of God. Then 30 years go by. Jesus has grown. Jesus has worked. Jesus has ministered. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen again. Jesus has returned to heaven, leaving instructions to his disciples that they are to go into all the world and preach the good news of the gospel to everyone. So the gospel writers, after Jesus has departed under the power of the Holy Spirit, begin to write their story. Matthew tells about Joseph and his acceptance of the birth that his fiancée is obviously having. He tells about the visit of the wise men and the escape to Egypt and the return. That's how he starts his story about Jesus. Mark begins with John the Baptist and Jesus as an adult. He skips the birth narrative altogether. Luke tells us of angels and shepherds, of those who obey the word of God because it's the right thing to do, and those like Simeon and Anna who welcome him. And the fourth gospel begins in the beginning. In the beginning, 
way back when. Who is it who's writing this fourth gospel? Well, verse 14, if you have it open in front of you or you remember it from the reading, says that the writer is an eyewitness. We have seen, he says. We have seen. And several chapters later in verse uh, in chapter 19, he, he says, the one who writes this saw it and testifies to it. This is true. And later when he writes a letter, John 1, 1, he says, I'm writing what we have seen and what we have heard and what we have touched. This is an eyewitness account. But who is it? Well, it's John, the son of Zebedee. Well, there's a little discussion about which particular John it was, but generally it's accepted. It's John, the son of Zebedee, the fisherman, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he calls himself later on in his gospel. John is writing. But who is John writing to? Well, he's sometimes described as the apostle to Asia. You'll remember that Peter is the head of the church. He's kind of overall. Uh, James is the head of the church in Jerusalem. And John is often designated as the head of the church to Asia, what you and I would call Turkey in these days. And he has there a very mixed congregation, a very mixed um, group of people living in the area, a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. And they're very different to each other. Probably some estimates say maybe 20% Jews and 80% Gentiles in the area. But these two groups of people are very different. The Jews believe in one God. They follow one book, the Torah. They have one cultural background from their history. They have typically one standard of morality. The Gentiles, on the other hand, have multiple gods. They tell multiple stories about their gods and their famous people. They come from many different cultural backgrounds, although at this time they're increasingly becoming Hellenistic. That is to say, they're adopting the Greek thinking, Greek reasoning, Greek style of understanding. Most of us here actually follow that same type of understanding. They have multiple standards of morality. So how does John approach this diverse audience? By starting at the beginning. In the beginning was the logos. That's the Greek word for word. In the beginning was the word. Yes, agree the Jews. Yes. In the beginning, God spoke and it came to be. The whole of creation came about by God's spoken word. Ultimately, though, God spoke to Moses and Moses wrote it down and created the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah. So God's thoughts, God's will, God's revelation of himself are now encapsulated in the Torah that we read and we follow. So yes, say the Jews, yes, we agree. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the logos, the word. Yes, agree the Gentiles. 
those especially the Greek-speaking, Greek-thinking, cultural Gentiles. We have many minor gods, but back in the beginning, the beginning of the cosmos, the beginning of creation, the beginning of the universe, came about by the Logos, the Word, the supreme essence, the wisdom, we sometimes called it as Greeks, or the reason for everything, the ultimate thought, the power behind all things. Yes, agree the Gentiles, in the beginning was the word. So John grabs the attention of his diverse audience by saying things that his audience agree with. In the beginning was the word. Yes, say the Jews. Yes, say the Gentiles. And the word was with God. Yes, say the Jews. Yes, say the Gentiles. And the word was God. Yes, say the Jews. Yes, say the Gentiles. And he, whoa, 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 he... Wait, what do you mean he? No, 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 no. The Logos is the Torah, the word of God in written form. The word of God is the reason, the wisdom, the, the power behind everything. But John insists that the Logos, the word, is a person. The word is a person. John makes it quite clear. If you've got your Bible open, follow along with me. Verses 2 to 4. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. He goes on to reference John the Baptist, who agrees that this is an eyewitness account. Going on to verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And through, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling amongst us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, He, 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 Him, 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 Him. His, 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 His. The Word, the only Son, the Word of God is a person. But who is he? Who is he? Well, he's already made it clear. He is God himself. And he was with God. He's the creator of all things. The Word the world was made through him. He is the source of life. The source of light. Physical light, because he said, let there be light in the beginning. But understanding too. Knowledge, insight, revelation comes through him. Showing the way in our darkness, our misunderstanding, our ignorance. But he is a person coming into the world 
he became flesh and he dwelt amongst us. This is the miracle that God, who might seem to be out there and far away, comes to us in human form. The one who speaks galaxies and Higgs bosons into existence attends a party and turns water into wine. The one who speaks to separate land and sea walks dusty roads and commands a storm to be still. The one who is the source of all life weeps at a friend's funeral and calls, Lazarus, come out. The one who is eternal, the one who is everlasting, dies. The one who is holy, so other, nevertheless invites us to be in his family. The one who is beyond all our understanding has made himself known. The one who was with God, who was God, comes and lives amongst us. As one of my favorite quotes from Mr. Graham Kendrick says, he who walked among the stars and calls each one by name lies helpless in his mother's arms and must learn to walk again. He has come. John says, we have seen him, we have heard him, we have touched him, we have witnessed him, we have followed him, we have spoken with him, we have seen his glory. That's the miracle of Christmas. So what? So what? The one you Jews wait for. The one you Gentiles reason must exist has come, superior to your many gods, full of grace and truth, offering relationship with God himself as his children, but not everyone welcomed him. Verses 10 to 12 again. He was in the world, but the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Explaining why John wrote these things later in his gospel in chapter 20. He says, These things are written in my gospel that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. 
the miraculous birth keeps happening. No, not Jesus' birth born over and over again, but yours and mine and our friends and our relations' miraculous birth. What did Webster say in the dictionary? An extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. He came that we might have life. He came that we might become children of God. He is the God who became human so that we humans can know God as our Father. The invitation is to recognize him, to receive him. Will we accept the miraculous birth we are offered? Have we done so? Will we do it? And if we have, if we have done it, if we have accepted him and received him, will we be join those who tell others the story as well so that they can know him too?